ceases to amaze me just the Lord's providence in passages that we're going to study. Um, I didn't choose this text for this morning, um, but I cannot think of a more appropriate passage um, for um, experience as a, as a body mourning, grieving with um, these that we love, um, who have lost um, a loved one. Um, and uh, so I'm looking forward to, to this text, sure. Um, so let me press the outline here. You know, we've been going through John 11, a very famous story of Jesus and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Um, and this morning we're going to finish this story of the raising of, of Lazarus. And I'm not going to spend too much time reviewing um, about a couple weeks ago, we were in the first section there, uh, verses 1 through 16, where Jesus is preparing. He's preparing his disciples. He's preparing Mary and Martha for the sign he's about to do. Um, he loves them. Because he loves them, he does not go and heal Lazarus immediately. Um, he waits for him to die so he can be four days late with Lazarus already decaying in the tomb. That's how much he loves them. Well, how's that loving? We said it's loving because through this, in this way, he's going to display his glory for them in a way that they would not have seen otherwise. That's the most loving thing he could do for them, to strengthen their faith, to show them himself. Last week, we were in verses 17 through 27, which was his conversation with Martha. So he arrives, he, he was in Bethany beyond the Jordan, about a four-day journey from this Bethany. He travels from Bethany to Bethany. Um, this one is located on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And he, he arrives. And Martha hears the word. She goes out and meets him and has this uh, incredible conversation with him in which he declares to her that he is the resurrection and the life. Um, his fifth I am statement in the Gospel of John. He tells her two things. Those who believe in him Though they die, they will live. They will be resurrected. He, he redirects her from this hope in the resurrection, a general hope the Jews had, to a focus on himself. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, from his life, they will be resurrected. And then he tells her uh, something else. In another sense, those who believe in him have now so come to enjoy life now, by faith in Christ, in connection with him have a relationship with God that they will never die. Death will not for a moment hinder your experience of true life. You will only go deeper into life, which is a knowledge of, of God. And that's what we talked about last week. And this morning we come to verse 28, and we're going to go through verse 44. Um, so after hearing these words, Martha makes this confession. Um, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. She affirms you are the resurrection and the life. I believe that. And then she runs back um, to tell Mary. Um, and, uh, and that's where we, we pick up the story. So I've, I've entitled it, Two Scenes Which Reveal the Heart and Purpose of Christ in This Fallen World. So she goes back and, and she calls Mary. In these, uh, in these two scenes, we're going to see Christ encounter 
this fallen world, and then we're going to see him respond to the fallen world. So the first thing he's going to be encountering it, he's going to get a flavor of what this world's like, how he thinks about it, and then the next one, how he's going to respond to it, how he's going to solve that problem. So verses 28 to 37, he encounters the grieving and angry nature of this fallen world. The scene begins with this disrupted privacy of Mary with Christ. Look at verse 28. When Martha had said this, she went and and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So she returns, calls Mary. Um, Apparently Jesus, we're not told, uh, but apparently he had summons her. Martha responds and and calls her in secret. Now why the privacy? Why why in secret? Remember, um, they didn't do... Funerals, the way we do it, they they had a seven-day period of mourning. Mary and Martha um, were sitting in their home, and mourners, friends, relatives, people would come and file through the home and and comfort them. Um, They didn't go to a funeral home like we do. Uh, They did it in their their home. And so the house is packed full of mourners, right? Um, And so it seems that what's going on here is is she goes and summons her in private because they want to have some kind of privacy with, with Christ, um, some kind of secrecy, an undisturbed meeting with Jesus in private. And, and that's what she does. She calls Mary um, in private and tells her Jesus is, is calling for her. Um, that's also why Jesus probably remains outside the village. He doesn't come into the home. Um, he wants to have time with, with these precious people. He wants to comfort the sisters, and the sisters care more about his comfort um, than the comfort of these friends. And so hearing this word, Mary gets up and she takes off. Um, but an undisturbed meeting is not what she gets. Look at verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep weep there. So the mourners see her run out. They don't know why. They assume "Eh, she's going to the grave, so let's let's go with her and and continue this mourning process that, that we've started here in the house. So that's all setting, okay? That brings us now to verses 32 to 35, in which we get this complex, these complex emotions of Christ toward this fallen world. Let's read it, verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So Mary is out in front of this group of mourners. She takes off. She reaches Christ first. And as soon as she gets to him, she she falls at his feet, um, probably out of her great reverence for him, but also in her intense sorrow. 
And at his feet, she's, she pours out her soul um, to Christ with the same words that Martha said. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So again, these are probably words that they rehearsed to one another over these four days. Where was he? If only he was here. Lazarus didn't have to die. If only, if only. So we, she's definitely sorrowful. She's definitely confused, but she most certainly is also full of faith in Christ, just as Martha. So we looked at Martha last week. This model disciple who, um, confused, sorrowful, and yet she doesn't call Christ into question. She doesn't indict him. And certainly that's the heart of, of Mary here as well. Um, but we don't get much conversation because these mourners arrive and they interrupt it. Um, look back at verse 31. She falls at his feet. She, um, verse 32, I'm sorry. And says, if you've been here, my brother would have died. And these mourners now surround them, verse 33, weeping. Um, so here's the scene. Mary's at Christ's feet, weeping with sorrow. And all these mourners are now surrounding them, weeping with sorrow. Um, Jewish custom often invo- involved the hiring of professional mourners to come. There would be flute players. There would be people that would be wailing loudly, as well as just the friends and the, the family um, gathered around. Um, The word used here for weeping is used twice. He saw Mary weeping, and he sees the Jews with her weeping. Um, It often signifies loud wailing um, and um, loud weeping. Uh, Look back with me to Mark chapter chapter 5. Same word is used back here. This is when Jesus raises the little girl um, from the dead. Jairus' home, chapter 5, verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, and people weeping and wailing loudly. Um, So it was intense mourning, intense sorrow. It's the same thing that's probably going on in our passage here. So just get the same. This is loud commotion surrounding Christ, loud weeping, mourning, wailing, deep emotions that are going on here. Um, and in response to that, we get some insight into some deep emotions of Christ. The first thing we, we see is his deep anger <coughs> and disturbance. Now look what it says. You might be saying, where do you get that, Michael? Verse 30, 33, Jesus sees them weeping, the Jews with them, her weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit. That's how ESV has it. Most of all the other translations have something similar to that. That is a poor translation. Um, This is not a common word in the New Testament, but from its New Testament uses, its Old Testament uses, and extra-biblical uses, it never refers to some kind of painful, sorrowful emotion um, like the English communicates. The basic idea is to be angry, to be moved with indignation. It was originally used to speak of horses snorting. Um, the, the idea. It would, it would better be translated, he was enraged in spirit. Um, he was indignant in his spirit. Um, look at the next word. So he was angered in his spirit and greatly troubled. Um, This word greatly troubled, we're going to encounter it in the later chapters 
um, chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. The same, same word. Um, Christ is going to speak this. He's at the dinner with Judas who's about to betray him. And it, it says he was greatly <coughs> troubled because Judas was there about to betray him. It, the, the idea is a great, you're, you're disturbed. You're stirred up in your spirit. You're, you're greatly disturbed by, by something. Um, it's a deep unsettledness. It, it's the, the feeling that you get when you walk through the Holocaust Museum and you come out the other side. You're unsettled. You're disturbed by it. Stirred up within. When Christ's hour of crucifixion comes, it says he was greatly troubled. He was disturbed. He's about to drink the wrath of God. That's the feelings that he gets here. So we can put the verse this way. When he saw Mary weeping, and those Jews who had come with her weeping, he was angry, indignant in spirit, and disturbed or troubled. So what Christ is feeling here is not simply grief or emotional pain. He's angry. Now why? Why are you angry, Jesus? Um, let me first say that he's not angry at sorrow and grief. We're going to see that clearly in verse 35 because he weeps with sorrow and grief. So what is he so enraged and, and troubled about? And I think there are two things. Number one, the first thing that excites his indignation is the unbelief of the people. This word, he was angered, comes again in verse 38. Look down there. It says, then Jesus deeply moved again, angered again, comes to the the tomb. And both of these times, here in, in verse 33 and then verse 38, both times they come immediately following people that say he could have done something else. People that say he could have prevented this. So back in verse 37, people say, couldn't he have kept him from dying? And Mary's word back in verse 32, if only you were here, he wouldn't have died. And Mary's words are certainly not like the unbelief of the crowd, but they, they still did um, go beyond anything Christ had promised them. So Christ is responding to unbelief in, in people's hearts. Um, it moves him to, to anger. This unbelief that, that, that's going on can also be seen in their excessive mourning. Again, Mourning, grief, it's good, it's proper, it's natural. We do that. Christ is not responding to that. He's responding to the wailing and the mourning surrounding him as people who have no hope. In other words, here is the resurrection and the life standing in front of these people. And they are wailing and mourning in front of him as people who have no hope. What hope and, and comfort it should have brought them. Here he is. That's what comfort comes to us, right? We recall Christ, who he is, his promises to us. And here he is standing in front of them. They're wailing and, and mourning. Even Mary, a true believer, um, was not as mindful of this as she ought to have been. It's like a, a doctor who comes to um, people that are dying of an infectious disease and they're weeping and wailing while the doctor's pockets are bursting full of medicine. That's 100% cure for the disease. 
belittles the doctor. It belittles the medicine. He's right here. The solution's right, right here. It stirs Christ up in his spirit. It angers him. It disturbs him. Grief and sorrow are one thing, but sorrow, as those who have no hope, is another. It angers him. That's not the only thing. There's a second thing that Christ is angered at in these, in these verses. It seems that he's also enraged and disturbed at the havoc and the pain and the sorrow brought on by sin and death in this fallen world. He loves Mary and Martha deeply. And so when he sees them moved by sorrow, um, it angers him. When he sees the sickness and the death, all the result of this fallen world. It's not how God intended it to be. It's not how Christ intended it to be when he made it. But because of sin, death entered into the world. It has maligned his world. It has bent up his world. And it angers him. And Christ has come to deal with that. So I think both of these, unbelief and death, can be said to be the cause of, of Christ's anger. And really, if you think about it, they're, they're, they're really not that distinct. Both of them are sort of characteristic of what we call the world. It's this, this fallen world, the sin of unbelief, or death that's the result of sin. It angers Christ. It's not the way it's ought to be. It deeply disturbs him. And that's why he has come to deal with these things. His anger doesn't move him to wrath, but to conquering this fallen world and everything that characterizes it. And that's what he does. Look at verse 34. It says, And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and, and see. So now being deeply disturbed, he's now ready to go and do the thing that he's come to do, raise Lazarus and give a glimpse to us of what he's ultimately come to do. Raise every one of you and fix this world which is in rebellion to him and which is under the curse of sin, sickness, and death. So Mary and Martha tell Jesus, come and see. Again, nobody knows what Jesus is going to do. They, they just figured Jesus wanted to go to the tomb and, and weep with them there. Um, Jesus knows what he's about to do. And um, look, what he, uh, look what happens next in, in verse 35. He also responds with sorrow and grief. He's not sorry for Lazarus. He knows what he's going to do to Lazarus. Lazarus is going to come back. He's sorrowful and grieving over the very same thing that he was angry Look at verse 35. This is the verse that, your favorite memory verse when you're a child, right? <laughs> Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He wept over the very same thing he was angry at, the fallen condition of this world. Not only do we get insight into his deep anger and disturbance, but into his profound grief and sorrow. The word for weep here is different than the one we saw back in verse 33. Um, this one probably denotes the simple shedding of tears. He, he burst out into tears. Um, deep grief, deep sorrow. 
Just note the glorious complexity of the emotions of Christ here. They're not contradictory. We've seen this in other places, right? He can pronounce woes on Jerusalem for the impending judgment coming on them and then turn around and weep over Jerusalem for the impending judgment coming on them. The same sin and death which incited his anger now moves him to sorrow. He's enraged at this fallen world and all the devastating consequences of sin, and he's deeply grieved by this world and all the devastating consequences of sin. There's glory here, guys. Glory in Christ. He's angered. He's sorrowful. He's not come in judgment, but in grief. Not for the purpose of destroying the world, but for saving the world. There's a lot of instruction for here, uh, for us here, isn't there? We slip into one or the other of these pretty easily, don't we? We're either in empty sentimentalism, grief, sorrow, um, or we can go on the other side, unbridled anger, frustration at the consequences of, of sin. We either grieve as people without hope, or we respond with anger as those who should feel grief. We should grieve. We should sorrow. I grieved when I heard the news of Mrs. Cooter. I've known her my whole life. I love these people. Mrs. Purdy is my Sunday school teacher. I right, I sorrowed. I wept. But we also do that not with anger. Christ was angry. It's his creation. We do it with hope. Because he's come. It's unnatural, but he's come. And he's conquered it. And that's what we're going to see in, in just just a minute. But before Christ arrives at the tomb, we get one more glimpse of this, this fallen world in the, in the next verses. The mixed responses of the Jews at Christ. Look at verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? two groups here. The first um, sees his tears, recognizes his love for the family. They're not wrong. Jesus profoundly loved these people. We saw that back in verse 5. He did shed tears out of love for them. But they're mistaken. They they think he's crying for Lazarus. Look what they say. See how he loved him. Um, As though Jesus is mourning with just as much hopelessness as this crowd is. He's not. He's not weeping for Lazarus. They don't know what he's weeping over. So so there's ignorance in this group. Look at the next group, verse 37. Theirs is um, nothing but hard unbelief. Verse 37. Some say, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man? So chapter 9, what he did there? They heard about it. They're from Jerusalem. Could not he have also kept this man from dying? So the words are similar to Mary and Martha. All of them question why Christ didn't show up on time. But Mary and Martha maintain their trust in Christ's person. These people here are quite different. Their words are, are, are right to some extent. He certainly could have prevented Lazarus from dying, but he didn't. So their words imply either that Christ is uncaring. He could have and he, he didn't. He doesn't love them or he's unable. He's a fraud. He's not really. Either one evidences massive unbelief. 
That's the unbelief that characterizes the crowd throughout John, isn't it? Never enough signs. They want an endless flow of miraculous power. Jesus, if you don't keep performing, we ain't believing you. That's the crowd here. And it is the world on display. Hard unbelief. And it angers Christ. And with that, the world has now been put on display in all of its hideous colors. This grotesque picture of the world, its unbelief, and the consequences of sin, sickness, and death have been put on display. And now Christ responds in verses 38 to 44. He responds to this fallen world with the glory of his person. And in verses 38 to 40, he responds with the glory of his death-defying anger. Look at verse 38. And Jesus, deeply moved, deeply angered again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Again, this is the second time we encounter this word. He was angry. What's he angry at? He's angry at the persistent unbelief of the people. So here they are. Standing behind him, chirping in his ears, unbelief, angering him. And then in front of him is death, his tomb. And he's angered by both. To that, he responds. He's come to destroy, to conquer, to overcome both of these things, the world. What he's about to do, he's going to do out of his anger at the unbelief in man to give them another sign in his grace that they would believe in him. And he does it out of his anger at the painful realities of death. Love this quote by, by John Calvin. He says, Christ does not approach the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder that he again groans for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. He's angry. It's there. And he's going to respond to it. He's going to conquer it. That's why he's come. That's why he's going to give us this sign as a foretaste for what he's going to do universally in this world. Look at verse 39. <clears throat> Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Mary's astonished at this request. She has no idea what he's going to do. Um, four days, the body's already begun to decay. Decomposition set in. Um, just like your body will be doing one day in the grave, it's stinking. Um, what are you doing, Christ? We'll look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? When did Jesus tell her that? Well, I think two places. Look back at verse 4. They send him a message. The messengers come to him. And it seems he sends this message back by way of the messenger to Mary and Martha. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So the Son of God might be glorified through it. It's possible, though, he's also referring to verse 23. Look at that. Jesus said to her, your brother will 
rise again. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The glory of God, what is that? He said, you'll see the glory of God. The glory of God is the visible splendor of the person and the character of God put on public display. It's going to be put on display in Christ as he raises the dead um, from his own power and from his own life. And, and Mary, back then, she responded with faith. You're Messiah. I believe that about you. And here he's making the point that if you believe that about me, then you can trust me now. Move the stone. And when she does, she's going to catch a glimpse of this glory, which is going to one day be revealed universally. So this prepares us for what he's about to do. He, he's come to look death square in the eyes and conquer it by the glory of his person for all believers. And one day he will overcome death in a moment, in the resurrection on the last day. And for those with eyes to see, for only for those with eyes to see, for believers, when they see this sign, they will catch a glimpse of Christ's glory. You have to believe in Christ's person you do this sign, you will know what it is telling you about the glory of this person and what he will accomplish. Before he does it, he first prays so we don't miss the glory of his intimacy with the Father. In verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. We've seen this over and over in John. Christ has not come on his own. He's always in submission to the Father. He's not come to seek his own glory. He's come to do what the Father has sent him to do. It's this unique relationship between him and the Father. Notice Christ has already asked the Father to do this. I thank you that you have heard me. So he's dependent on the Father. He asks the Father, and the Father always hears and answers his Son. There's the dependence of the Son of the Father, and the Father's perfect pleasure with Christ. And he also prays for the sake of the people. He wants the people and us to conclude from this sign his unique relationship with the Father. And that brings us now to the high point this passage, verse 43. The glory, the power of his voice. Before we read it, go back to, with me to chapter 5. Chapter 5. If you've been with us, so we've been working through John, you'll remember chapter 5. It actually made the very point that we just made. Christ is in perfect dependence on the Father. And the Father is completely satisfied with the Son, always working through his Son. And Christ says something here, which is parallel to what he will do in our passage. So, chapter 5, verse 25. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, self-existing, source of life. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs 
they'll hear his voice. They'll come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Go back to chapter 11, verse 43. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, and bind him and let him go. The powerful words of the sovereign creator. Commands in decaying bodies respond and come to life. Many commentators like to note here, it's sort of speculation. Um, it's not the point John's making, uh, but I think it's certainly true. They say, so powerful is the voice of Christ that had he not specified Lazarus by name, all the tombs would have opened and given up their dead. And one day that will happen. He speaks and the dead respond. And that's the glory of God in Christ. And it will one day universally be accomplished on the last day. It's why he's come. It's how he responds to this great enemy, death. As a mighty champion, he looks it square in the eyes and conquers it in one word. His anger at this fallen world, combined with his sorrow and grief, has led him not to judge it, but to come and conquer it. And in this sign, he gives us a foretaste of his, of his power. Notice one more thing. Look at how it describes Lazarus in verse 44. Says the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a, a face cloth. Um, that's how they would have been prepared for, for burial. He would have staggered out, he would have been very tightly bound, um, stumbled and bumbled as he worked his way out. That's why Christ says, Let him go, loosen him. Um, I think something else is going on here. It's interesting it mentions linen strips and face cloth. Now, where have we or will we see those items again? In the resurrection of Christ. So go there, chapter 20. Um, same items are going to be mentioned. What's interesting is how different the two scenes are from one another. Chapter 20, verse 6. Simon Peter came following him, John, and he went in the tomb and he saw linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. You see, Jesus' body was resurrected to a new creation, glorified body. The kind that we're all going to receive, a spiritual body, as Paul called it. A body that will never die again. Unlike Lazarus, who was raised only to stagger and bumble his way out of, out of the tomb, needed to be released from these grave clothes, Jesus was resurrected such that his grave clothes were left behind. The stone rolled away. 
a real body that could eat and drink and live and be touched and have the marks of the nails, but one that could enter rooms with doors still closed, one which would never die again. In other words, what happens to Lazarus here is more of a resuscitation than it is a resurrection. It's a sign of what Christ would accomplish, but it is not the real thing. Poor old Lazarus still has to die again. Uh, He has to do it twice. Um, It's a taste of what's coming at the more glorious resurrection. But before that can happen, Christ has to first be crucified. And we've been saying that with this sign, it's the final straw. It will lead to Christ's death, which is his ultimate glorification. That must happen. He must die as the Lamb of God, take away the sin, and then be raised as the first fruits. And then one day he's going to come and he's going to do this for Mrs. Purdy, Mr. Kane, Mrs. Cooter, and every one of us. Listen to J. Ramsey Michaels here. The so called resurrection of Lazarus is but a sign of future resurrection, not the event itself. The promise to Martha. The brother will rise, still awaits the resurrection on the last day. It's a glorious Savior. Hope. Man, there's hope there. We sorrow, we grieve. There's people. But Christ standing in front of us. I have a couple of implications. Any any thoughts, questions, comments? So, yes. I'm not sure if there's a connection, but um, when the people told Christ to come and see. Yeah. Um, it goes back to uh, John 1 when the disciples, well, some of the disciples, uh, they asked where Jesus was staying, and he said, come and see, mm-hmm. and there's joy there. They, he was leading them to life, but right before Jesus weeps, it just seems that like they're like, come and see, and they're leading him in sorrow and, mm. and, and to death, to, to show him the death, not really filled with hope, yeah. so it kind of shows their persistent like sorrow, but then him just weeping over just kind of like his words he used. I don't know if it's like the same translation, but it's just like them leading him, showing him, hey, yeah. here's what we have to show you. This is death, but That's Jesus good. was showing him, showing the disciples, this is come with me and see to, to life. Yeah. But I don't know if there's a connection. That's excellent. I think there is. Um, it's a very similar phrase that he uses. So yeah, yeah, Mr. Ryan. Um, I don't think there's any reference in or any record of Lazarus ever saying a word, is there, in the scripture. And yet his, he was a powerful witness. So we, we'll come to it in chapter 12 where we don't have a record of him saying a word. There's people eating dinner with him, you know, and uh, they're, they're having a meal with him, yes, right? Yeah. And that, but we don't, we don't hear anything from there's him. There's no word, so, but, yeah. and yet many Jews believed on him. Yeah. It was his, what is the event that brought him, you know, mm. A silent witness, but he was a powerful witness. Good. Good. And then what you said strikes me too, that that in, in one sense, and I say this reverently, it was a bummer that, that he had to come back to life again. <laughs> <laughs> he probably had moved into his, his mansion up there in four days, and now he had to come back again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Amen. It's good. Just a quick translation question. Yeah. I really don't know. Uh-huh. I read, most of the time I read ESV, and I heard a, a talk between uh, Rudum and Mounts, because they were both on the same committee that translated the ESV. Uh, the reasoning behind why they wouldn't put the, the emotions behind what the original language put in there, 
just an attempt to not portray Jesus as angry and trying to, for the lack of a better word, justify him? Or you know, why why not put that in there? Because that changes that those it does. that changes those verses a lot. It does. Yeah. I'm just curious if you ever looked at or thought about it. Or yeah. So uh, preface this by saying, if you have an English Bible, um, it's very reliable. All right. I don't want to make you think, man, I've got to question every word. Um, th- th- these are uncommon instances. Um, translation committees oftentimes, because they're, they're thinking about the audience, how are they going to read this? Well, it, it could it possibly lead to misinterpretation, right? Um, and uh, so they're, they're always trying to juggle it and balance those things. So I'm not sure their exact reasoning behind it. Um, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's just hard to find any kind of idea of grief or sorrow in the linguistic ev- evidence. It's just it's not there, you know? So, question. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah, Mark, I just want to draw. Thank, thank you for the cross reference. That's just so helpful, like the authority there. Because <laughs> if Jesus, you know, like the conspiracy theorist, if he was robbed out of his grave, right, he wouldn't take the time to fold his face for him. So, so you just see an authority there, like Jesus expected, fully expected, he's going to be raised. Waltzed right out of that grave. That is just helpful. Yeah. It is. Good stuff. Let me encourage you with two thoughts. Find great comfort here. The resurrection that's coming. That's is where so you grieve, you mourn, do it with hope. He's going to do this just as easily, just as surely, even more gloriously for you than he did for Lazarus. The other thing is, he's already begun. Remember chapter 5, verse 25? It says, The hour's coming. And is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Well, how is that happening? It's happening in spiritual resurrections, which are happening as we speak the word. And as you share the gospel. And as dead people hear the voice of Christ and come to life. And that word, oh, it's going through a frail vessel like me and like you. It has just as much power as this word which raised Lazarus from the dead. Know that. He is in the process of resurrecting the new people spiritually now who have that life we talked about last week, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, and fellowship with God. Now in this life, he's doing it. His word's power. So be faithful. Share Christ with someone. Go and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the hope. May Christ be honored. Love you. Prepare our hearts for the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.